You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. If you'll remain standing this morning, turn to Revelation chapter 15. Listen, when the Holy Spirit says do something, we, we follow through with that, right? To do anything else is to be disobedient. Can we all agree on that? The Holy Spirit says sing another round, we're going to sing another round. The Holy Spirit says don't worry about noon, we're not going to worry about noon. (laughs) Revelation chapter 15 verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with the seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea mingled, a, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image, and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands. And they sang, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Father, we worship you this morning, and we're grateful for your goodness and kindness towards us. That while we were sinners, Christ came. He lowered himself to the place of a bondservant. He took on a cross, carried it faithfully, all the way to a place outside the walls of the city. And there they nailed the Son of God to the cross. And as they were nailing you, Lord, to that cross, you cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They hung you between two thieves as though you were a common criminal when you had done nothing wrong. And there you bled and you died. That You became sin for us that we may become the sons and daughters of God. You who knew no sin became sin. We who were sinners and evil to the core, who were disobedient, choosing to disobey, who were alienated from you and the Father, you brought close through your blood. Not only did you bring us close, but you adopted us as sons and daughters. Father, we worship you this morning. We thank you for the great and mighty works you have done. So, Father, guide us in your word this morning. We ask it in the powerful name of Christ, your Son. Amen. You can be seated. So we have seen quite a bit of the judgment of God. And I'm happy to say that in 15 and 16, we're going to be on moving towards the final victory of Christ riding upon that horse as he rains down the final judgment in the battle of Armageddon. We're moving in that direction. Chapters 15 and 16 is going to reveal the final stages of God's judgment upon this earth through what we know to be the bold judgments. We started out as Jesus took the the rolled up scroll from the hand of God the Father 
and began to break those seals, we saw in those seven seals judgments of God. And we, we realized that the first six seals that were broken were judgments that God poured out upon this earth. And that the seventh seal, we were introduced to the seven trumpets of judgment. And we walked through those seven trumpets, and in those seven trumpets, we saw not even not only God's judgment, but we saw amazing and miraculous things that happened that cannot be explained any other way except that God was intervening. And it was during those trumpet judgments that we began to see the response of humanity to God as he pours out wrath. What we would expect is that as people would see that this is the hand of God moving, and they even acknowledged that, not only in those previous chapters that we've looked at, but we're going to see it again today. You would hope that humanity would fall on their face before God and worship Him. But as we're going to see today, the, act, the reality is exactly the opposite. As we watch those seven trumpets, when we got to the seventh trumpet, we, we now begin to see the next stage of, of God's judgment, and this is the final stage. In the seventh trumpet, we have revealed to us these seven bowl judgments. Now, in between those trumpets and these bowls, we've had a, a long interlude, basically from chapter 10 all the way up to chapter 15. But now in chapter 15, we're going to see that the wrath of God is going to be poured out, and, and, the, and the scope of this wrath is going to be much broader, much bigger than what we've seen. It's going to affect every single person on this planet that have surrendered themselves to the Antichrist. If you remember, those who have who have, uh, are now worshiping this great leader, they have taken a mark in their hand or on their forehead. And now what we're going to see in chapter 15 and 16 is God pouring his wrath out on those people, those who've aligned themselves as God's enemies. And as we've seen all of this judgment, and as we, no matter where you're reading through the Bible, if you're reading through the Bible in a year and you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll come to places in the Old Testament where you'll kind of sit back in your, in your chair and you have to go, my goodness, why is God pouring out such incredible punishment upon humanity? I've been asked this question many times, especially from people who, are, who didn't grow up in the church. They'll hear stories about uh, what God did in the Old Testament. And one of the, one of the hang-ups that they'll have is that how, how could God, who, who you describe as being altogether loving and sovereign and providential, how could this God... You know, command the Israelites to, to wipe out an entire nation of people, the Canaanites. And people really wrestle with this, this God who is, who is on the one hand holy and perfect and, and righteous, altogether perfect. But on the other hand, when, when God is angry and he begins to pour out that wrath, we wrestle with those two, well, attributes, clear characteristics of who God is. Well, as we've been walking through this book, no doubt many times have you seen what God has poured out or will pour out on this planet, maybe you've had that moment where you've maybe questioned the goodness of God. I want to give you kind of an illustration to help us kind of wrap our arms around what we're going to look at today, but, but also as we kind of move towards Jesus coming in victory. And the idea is this, if, if you can imagine a 15-year-old who, who goes to school and uh, gets upset with his classmate. And when he gets upset with his classmate, he, he lashes out and punches his classmate in the nose. I mean, that's a pretty big deal at school now, and, and it was when I was in school, and maybe he gets suspended for a few days. Uh, parents have to come in, have a meeting with maybe the teacher, the principal, and other authorities, and maybe it goes in his record, and, and then you move on. But let's say that same 15-year-old student 
instead of punching his buddy, decides to punch the teacher. Well, that's a whole new level, right? That's a, that's a whole other level of offense. So in that moment, the uh, safety officer, the, the, the site school officer is going to be involved. The, the student may actually be arrested if the, if the teacher presses charges. Certainly going to be suspended. Certainly may have a criminal record as a result. So, so the fact that if he, te- if he punches a student, that's one thing. If he punches a, a teacher or an administrator, that's, that's a whole other level of offense. Well, let's say that that same student, instead of punching the teacher, uh, punches a police officer. Well, you begin to see this is a whole new level of offense now. Punching a teacher's bad, but now you've punched a, a law officer. You're certainly going to be arrested. You're probably going to end up in trial. You're probably going to end up in jail. No doubt you will. But let's say that that same 15-year-old, instead of punching a police officer, is standing on the side of the road as the president's motorcade is coming through. And let's say that 15-year-old breaks out of the crowd, runs up to the motorcade, and punches the president in the face. Well, if he survives the Secret Service, because more than likely what they're going to do is pull their guns, they may actually shoot this kid on sight. Can we all just agree that kid's going to go into some government building somewhere and we're not going to see him for a while? Very, very serious offense. Now, in all of those examples, what he did was exactly the same thing. He punched someone in the nose. He went from punching a student to punching the president. But we all have to understand and agree that punching the president is different than punching a 15-year-old kid. And as such, the offense, the offense of punching the president is going to bring with it a higher degree of punishment than if he just punched a buddy of his in the classroom. Now, why do I share with this with you? Because when we think about what God is doing in these final stages of history, that the Bible describes both in Old Testament and New Testament the great day of the Lord. In the New Testament, Paul, John, Jesus, all of them spoke of this great day of the Lord. What we're seeing in chapters 15 and 16 is that great day of the Lord. It has is, it is now come. So why is it that God is pouring out, what well, we're going to see in these bold judgments, why is it that God is pouring out such wrath and such punishment upon this planet? Well, if a 15-year-old kid punches a president and ends up maybe even dead or going to prison for the rest of his life, imagine what it would be when an entire planet of people, 7 billion people, where a vast majority of those 7 billion people who are on the planet right now either care nothing about God or are actually cursing God. And not just the people who are on the planet right now. I'm talking about all people of all time from Adam and Eve all the way forward, even into the future, to where God is going to rain down judgment. The majority of those people, the world, the Bible tells us that wide is the path that leads to destruction. The majority of the people who've lived on this planet have not only rejected God, rejected the gospel, but are also angry, blame him, and are living in complete rebellion. Now, if one 15-year-old punching one president raises the element of punishment, what does it mean when millions and even billions of people hate the very name of God and curse him on a daily basis? Does that raise the level of offense? Is that offense greater than a 15-year-old punching the president? Yes, multiplied by billions of times. And not only that, the God who created humanity, created the world, and has revealed himself over and over and over again. He's revealed himself as a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of beauty. And those same people 
that God knit them together in their mother's womb are right now shaking their fists at his face. We've got a preview of the final stage of God's judgment in the previous chapter. Now what we're going to see in 15 and 16 is that final act. This is, the, this is the final act. The curtain is getting ready to close. God's mercy, God's patience, God's holding back is now going to be, well, set aside. And God is going to unleash his full and final fury upon this planet and all those who've taken the mark of the beast who are aligning themselves with an earthly leader who just happens to be seated on the throne of Satan himself. God is now going to unleash his full wrath. All throughout history, people have wrestled with the God of wrath and the God of love being the same. In other words, this God of love also is a God of mercy. And when they read the Bible, when you read the Bible, you come to a place like Noah and the, and the great flood. And I, and I know you think about the same thing that I think about in that moment. When, when God unleashed those waters and the only people who were saved were Noah and his family, you, you think about the children. You think about all those people on the planet who were wiped out in a moment's time. And you question, well, wait a minute, what was God up to? And, and maybe you move forward and, you, and you, think about, you think about the time where God's people, the Israelites, are taken off into Egyptian bondage. And we see the plagues that God poured out on Egypt and, and even the death of children under the wrath of God. And you think, wait a minute, who, who is this God that I'm worshiping? And maybe you move forward into the nation of Israel, and they're wandering around in the desert for 40 years in rebellion against God because they rebelled against God, and now they're wandering around the desert, and one whole generation dies in the wilderness. And again, you wonder about God's love and his mercy. You, you think about when the Israelites were taken into Babylonian captivity under King Nebuchadnezzar and all the suffering and the death that Jeremiah describes in his writings, and you think, who is this God of love and mercy? You look at the cross of Jesus. You look at Jesus being arrested, even though he was completely innocent. You look at that image. You look at that of what we're getting ready to, to remember as we lead into to Easter and the Resurrection Sunday. You look at that and you think, why did Jesus have to go through that? And why, why did God not intervene? Why did God not do something? Why would he allow his son to suffer such a heinous death? And in every one of those stories I just shared with you, every one of them, from Noah to the Israelites, Pharaoh, Babylonians, and all the other stories that you see where God pours out his wrath. You know what you find in every one of those stories? You find God's patience. You find his grace. You find God sending prophets to the very people that he's getting ready to pour his wrath out on, begging them to repent. So it's not as though God is like some mean guy up in heaven just waiting to, to beat you down. God is giving you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to respond to his grace, respond to the good news. But the reality is, and this is what is so hard for me to wrap my mind around, that even in spite of God revealing himself in the way that we're going to see him in this text, in the way we've seen him in the past, that people don't grow closer to God, they actually grow even more rebellious. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. So in other words, what John is experiencing is like what he experienced in Revelation 12 when he says he saw this great sign in heaven. 
So John is seeing this play out in the, in the heavenly courtroom of God himself. And what he sees is he sees seven angels. And these seven angels are going to have seven bowls. And within those seven bowls are going to be the wrath of God that he's going to pour out upon this planet. But notice that last phrase in verse 1. It says, with them the wrath of God is finished. In other words, what's about to happen with these seven bowls is going to complete what God started all the way back in Revelation 6. Now, as far as timeline goes, where are we? Well, I believe there's been seven literal years of terrible, horrible tribulation. First three and a half years is called the tribulation. Second three and a half years is called the great tribulation. You can look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to see how that plays out. The second part of the tribulation, the great tribulation, is where God's wrath is magnified. That is where we are. As a matter of fact, we're near the end of that seven years as far as 15 and 16. So God is going to pour out this final set of judgments upon the planet, and this is going to finish what God has started. Make sure you understand that God always finishes, finishes what he starts. He will bring it to completion. Not one person is going to escape. There will not be one person on earth who's aligned themselves with the Antichrist that will escape God's wrath. There will not be one person who slides by. There will not be one person where God winks at him and goes, oh, you're okay, you're, we're going to let you come in. Not a one. And everything that the prophets have talked about, all the promises that God has made, every one of them will be fulfilled in their entirety. Verse 2, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image. We have this imagery that John sees. He sees a a sea of glass, kind of like fire, and gathered around God's throne are all of those people that during the tribulation period, the Antichrist has put to death. If you remember weeks ago I told you, or last week I told you that, that when this Antichrist is able, to, is able to resurrect, he dies, resurrects, the world is marveling at this Antichrist. They think he's God. So they all line up and they take this mark in their hand or in their forehead to, to basically show their allegiance to what they've determined now is a God among them. And as they have worshipped him and as they have followed him, The Antichrist then turns around and says to everyone who's following him, you go and you kill and destroy any person who rejects this mark. By taking the mark or not taking it, you have now separated yourself from the rest of the world. It's easy to tell who has a mark and who doesn't. For those who don't, for whatever reason, they need to be destroyed. And these very people who are followers of Jesus are standing before the throne of God as victors. Notice this. It says that they sing the song of Moses. That would be Exodus 15. And they sing the servant of God, or Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, singing, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. These people are worshiping God because they know what's about to happen. Remember those saints that we, we, we looked at back in Revelation 5 who were around the, the throne of God and they were martyrs? They've been praying to God, and God has heard their prayers. This group of people is around the throne worshiping God, and every one of those people have been killed for their faith. And they know what's about to happen. They know that God is about to unleash his full wrath, not only just upon those who have the mark, but he's about to unleash his wrath upon the Antichrist himself. Verse 5, and after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. In heaven there is a, a sanctuary, a temple, and there, God, there John sees, coming out of that sanctuary, seven angels with seven plagues. They were clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. 
And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven goals, seven bowls full of the wrath of God. We haven't talked much about those four beasts since Revelation 4. But remember, in Revelation 4, we, we were introduced to these four incredible, amazing beasts that are around the throne. And we haven't heard anything from them until now. And one of those beasts stepped forward as these angels enter the sanctuary of God. This, this beast gives these angels these seven bowls. And these bowls are sloshing full of the wrath of God. It is imagery that, that helps us to understand that, that God's wrath has been held back for a while. That God's wrath has been held with him for a while. In other words, everything that God has unleashed upon this planet, every time he's done it, he's given grace and patience and mercy and time to those who are on this planet. And they chose to reject him. But even in all that God has done, all down through history and time, God has been reserving his anger and his wrath until this moment. These seven bowls are given to these seven angels by this beast who's around the throne. And notice, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. All through Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we see this imagery of when God's presence is near smoke and fire and lightning and thunder. Uh, if you remember, when Abraham was given the covenant promises, God comes down in this image of a burning stove, and there's clouds, and, and God gives Abraham the covenant. But not only that, seals the covenant and says to Abraham, I will keep all of my promises. Moses up on the mountain receiving the law. The people around at the bottom are looking up, and what do they see? They see smoke and clouds and thunder and lightning. They hear the voice of God. It speaks of his glory. It speaks of his power. And notice it says no one can enter the sanctuary. In other words, everything is put on pause in heaven until these seven angels deliver what they've been given. What I have realized um, all down through my years of ministry and life is that not only do people, not only are people created with a desire to know their creator. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the pen of Solomon says that we're all created with a desire to know God. But you know what else I've found that's consistent in humanity? And it doesn't matter if you're in a, a tribe somewhere on the other side of the planet. There is this, there's this expectation that humanity has that the world is going to end. It's amazing. Then no matter where you go, no matter what age bracket you talk to, if they're honest, if they're honest, they will admit that at some point the world is going to end. Now, there are those who say, well, if we just work hard, we can bring about a utopia here on earth. If we can just do the right things and you know, get a good education system and enough money and get it distributed to everybody equally, we can have this utopia. But if they're really honest, they'll tell you that they believe the world's going to end. Now, what's being discussed today and what's been discussed for the last I don't know, many years, is climate change. That, that humanity is going to destroy the earth. That humanity is going to bring about this great cataclysmic event that humanity is the center of the end of the world. Well, I'm here to tell you, on the authority of God's Word, there is only one person that's going to bring about the end of this earth, and he's the one who created it. It's not you and I. There's this doomsday clock that uh, was established in 1947. And some scientists got together, and they were really concerned about nuclear war. So they, they came up with, with some imagery to help us kind of know where we stand in relation to the end of the world. And I just find this very intriguing because there's all kinds of both scientists and, and uh, people who are uh, engaged in, in nuclear war and all of those things, the people who built the bomb back in 1947, they all kind of came together and said, you know, we need some kind of 
imagery that helps us know kind of where we are in relation to the end of the world. Now, there at that time in 1947, they were thinking about nuclear war. So what they have is they have a clock, and you can go on Google, and you can search Doomsday Clock, and you can go look at it, a whole website there. And what they did is they put a clock together, and, and, and midnight is the top of the clock. So what they do is they say, okay, midnight is the end of the world. Midnight is cataclysmic worldwide death. So if, if the clock strikes midnight, it's over. So what they do is they say, okay, let's back up in front of that clock, and, and that gives us kind of an understanding of how close or how far we are from doomsday. So the furthest the clock has ever been from midnight was in 1991, and it was 17 minutes before midnight. Do you know why 1991? That's when the Cold War came to an end. The whole idea of nuclear armament and the wall fell, and, and it was almost like a time where uh, we were kind of together, and everything was, everybody was kind of setting aside the, the nuclear arms talk, and all that kind of calmed down. I can remember as a child in third grade, um, the school would have nuclear bomb drills. Now, in third grade, I had no idea what it was, but it, man, it struck the fear of God in me because I, I, all I knew was it was a bomb that could destroy everything. So here's what we would do. The, the teachers, would, they'd have the alarm go off, and we would go out in the hallway, and we'd put our head down between our knees. Now, even in my third grade mind at that point, I'm thinking if the bomb is that significant, is it really going to help for me to put my head between my knees? It didn't make sense to me. But in 1991, we came to this place where, where we felt like there was finally some world peace when it came to nuclear arms. And then at different stages since 91, the clock has been closer to midnight or further away when 9-11 happened. And global terrorism, guess what? The clock moved to about two minutes from midnight, telling all of us that, man, this thing could really, really get ugly, and we could literally see the end of the world. And if you remember during that time, people were scared to death. People were afraid that the end of the world was coming. When they watched those images on TV and they saw those towers hit by those planes and the Pentagon hit and they saw those towers come by, they were people. I was at work. I was still working at a plant at that time. And I had coworkers that were saying, is this the end of the world? You see, it's there. It's there. And when stuff like that happens, it all gets stripped away and we all wrestle with the finality of human life and, and just how brief our life is and how quickly things can change. I bet you're wondering where the clock sits today. Well, according to the experts, and Lord knows we've got plenty of those, the clock today is the closest to midnight that it's ever been since 1947. 90 seconds. 90 seconds ahead of midnight. What does that tell us? Well, one thing you need, you need to understand, these are just experts who are looking at climate change, nuclear war, what's going on with Ukraine and Russia, and all the threats. Now, get this. We've come full circle. We're now back to nations who are... Who are who are saying they're going to use nuclear war. Here we are, back again. We've, we went full cycle, right? So these scientists look at all this and go, man, we are right on the doorstep of the end of the world. And that's not meant to strike fear in you. Matter of fact, it's not meant for you to really take all that very seriously because I'm hoping that what you've seen in the book of Revelation in the providence of God, he's the one in control here. However, what it does show us is that within the heart of every person, person you sit beside in the cubicle at work, the person you go to school with, deep down if they're honest, they're worried about it. And they've asked themselves maybe multiple times, is this the end? I believe God created us not only for a desire to know him and seek him out, but also to understand that, that we're not going to live forever. 
Chapter 16, verse 1 starts this way. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. I want you to notice how quick these judgments come. We're going to move through them pretty quickly. And what you're going to notice is that these judgments are much more, they're much broader than what we've seen with both the seal judgments and the trumpets. You're going to see them come in rapid succession, and you're going to see the totality of God's wrath poured out in just a few verses. So the first bowl that is poured out, those who have taken the mark, those who are worshiping the beast, they are now struck with sores all over their body. Now, I did a little, little work on this and came across a verse in Zechariah, who's a prophet. Zechariah chapter 14, I believe Zechariah is talking about the end times. I think he's talking about what's happening here. And Zechariah describes a disease that will be inflicted upon those who make Israel their enemy, that God is going to inflict on them sores that he describes as the flesh rotting off their body even as they stand. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 12. That is frightening. I believe that's what's happening. It's not just welts. I'm talking about their flesh is literally rotting on their body. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The earth is covered by 90% water, oceans. When you look at the globe, what do you see more of? Blue. Now what we've seen in past judgments, we saw a third of the ocean's life die. Not this time. This time, the totality of all the oceans, 90%, I'm sorry, 70% of the planet, not 90, 70, 70% of the planet covered in water, everything in that water is going to die because it's turned to blood. Now, you may be thinking at this moment, well, how in the world is the water going to turn to blood? All I have to do is direct you to the creator of the universe who spoke and hung the stars in place. Do you think it's going to be any problem for him to snap his fingers and turn the seawater to blood? If God is God, He's all-powerful. It's not going to be a problem for him at all. And all the life in that ocean is going to die. Imagine walking along the coastline down at Myrtle Beach, looking out over those waves, and all you see is blood, and all you see is dead animal life that's washing up on the shore. Can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine the horror that humanity is going to be placed in in that moment? The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of the water. We've seen this in a previous judgment, but it was only a third. It was only a partial. Now it's going to be all of the fresh water. And during this time, water is already scarce, but now this water is going to be turned to blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just as you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. And this angel says it is what they deserve. This angel who's seeing this judgment poured out upon the planet, steps to the side for a moment and just gives us a little bit of commentary. This angel kind of steps to the side and says, hey, they are getting what they deserve because all those people who are standing before the throne of God worshiping have been anticipating this moment that what the Antichrist has done in putting a target on their back have now been given blood to drink. And make sure you understand that the Antichrist himself, who's being worshipped as God in this moment, he is the one who's also suffering with these sores. He is the one who's also suffering because he has no fresh water to drink. This one that they worship as God, this one that they've elevated to the place of God himself, he is also suffering. 
Where's your God now? Notice what happens next. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched with fire, with fierce heat, and they, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. So if, if you're in this moment, if you're there, and you're seeing all of this destruction, and you've already seen all the other destruction that God has poured out, your inclination would be is that the people are going to fall on their face and worship God. How many times have I been asked, well, you know, I would believe Jesus if, if maybe he could just show up and do a miracle. If he could show me some sign or some miracle, then I'll believe. The reality is, and we see this from Genesis to Revelation, that even in spite of God doing incredible revelatory work in front of their eyes, their heart becomes harder, not softer. Now, this should be a warning to all of you who have not put your faith in Jesus, and yet you've heard the gospel over and over. I want to warn you straight from what the Bible says, not only from this text, but what the Bible says about your heart becoming calloused and hard. You need to understand something. There is no zero sum here in this, in this, this moment of, of opportunity to respond to God's grace. In other words, there's not some middle ground where you stay in that middle ground. Every time you reject Christ, every time you reject the gospel, Every time you walk away from his free offer of grace, every time you do that, your heart gets harder and colder and more indifferent. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that eventually, as you continue in your disobedience, you know what God does? God says, I'm going to wipe my hands of it, and I'm going to turn you over to yourself. What we see right here in Revelation is the un restricted revelation of God in real time. The sun being turned up, sores all over people's bodies, the waters turning to blood. There is no way to, there's no way to explain away the waters turning to blood other than some kind of miraculous intervention by God. There's no other way. And not only that, they acknowledge that it was God. Look at this. They did not repent or give him glory. You see that? They even acknowledge that there is a God, they acknowledge that he's behind this, but they will not repent and they will not glorify him. Lost person, you've got to understand that the more you reject, the harder it becomes to respond. The more you rebel, the harder it is to hear the truth and even see it when it's right in front of your eyes. These people are seeing the truth of God in front of their eyes yet they are rejecting him. Notice what happens. The fifth angel. The fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish. So, so God then torments the kingdom of the Antichrist, this kingdom that everyone thought was the very thing the world needed, that it was going to unify the nations and that you know, there's going to be one money and one system and that this, this man who leads it, he is a God himself. And now they look at their God and he's the one suffering with sores. He's the one being scorched by heat. He's the one needing a drink of water and can't find it. And he's the one now who's coming directly under the wrath of God. God begins to punish and torment the kingdom of the Antichrist. He thrusts them into darkness. He turns off the lights. Now, if we go back 
to the plagues of Pharaoh, this same thing happened. What's interesting is, is that the nation of Israel were not in darkness, but the people who were aligned with Pharaoh were. It's almost like they were blinded, couldn't see, in total darkness, while God's people could. This angel knows what happens. He says that they gnaw their tongues in anguish between the anguish of the sores, the anguish of the sun, the anguish of this total, complete darkness. They are chewing on their own tongues. In verse 11, look at this, and cursed the God of heaven. These are not atheists, folks. I told you a couple of weeks ago that one of the things that I see in the tribulation is not, not, a, not a denouncing of religion, not a denouncing of worship. What I see in the tribulation is an increase in worship. So these people are not atheists. They, they, there are no atheists. I don't, think, I don't think there's any atheist at this time because they're either worshiping the Antichrist or they're worshiping God. But make no mistake about it, there's no one in between. And these people know that God is real. They know that he exists, and they know that he's the one behind all of this. And why in the world would they not fall on their faces? It's because their hearts are cold and indifferent and callous. It says they did not repent of their deeds. In their pride and their ego, they would not bow the knee to this holy God. They would not. Really shouldn't surprise us because we have people like this today. Same thing. When confronted with the reality of an empty tomb, Confronted with the reality of a God who spoke and hung the star and the moon and the sun in place, the galaxies, yet they still reject. They still will not surrender. They will not submit. Notice this, verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. This Antichrist has, unifor- has unified the nations of the earth. And in the next chapter, in the next chapter you're going to look at this city, this kingdom of Babylon. We're going to take a little side trip here. We're going to look at the kingdom of Babylon and how powerful it was. And then the very next chapter, we're going to see that same city destroyed. That same city will fall in a miraculous, amazing fashion. But for now, notice, God is preparing and inviting all of those who've rebelled against him. He's inviting them to cross the Euphrates River. So he dries it up. And he's going to invite the Antichrist and all those who follow him to join him in the Valley of Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo. We talked about that last week. 184 miles long valley floor, some 60 miles wide, where great battles all down through history has happened. And the Bible has said multiple times that in that place, in that valley, will be the final great battle of all humanity. And really, we shouldn't even call it a battle. Because you will see in a few weeks, it's no battle at all. It's a slaughter. This is when Jesus comes back. This is where Jesus sets his foot upon this planet for the first time since he ascended back to the Father. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But for now, here's what God is doing. God is saying, all those who worship the beast, come and meet me in the valley of Megiddo. And just so you know how far their ego has taken them, how far their pride has taken them, they actually think they have a chance. These who've rebelled against God actually think they're going to go into that valley and that they are going to take God down. Remember what Satan did? Remember what caused him to get cast out of heaven to start with? We talked about that a few weeks ago. He he raises up a coup in heaven to try to kick God off the throne. How did that work out for him? Not so well. How's this going to work out? Not any better. But all those who've taken the mark are going to join Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet 
And out of those three are going to come these, these demons, unclean spirits. And these, these unclean spirits are going to lead and, and bring the armies of the earth together under demonic power. And they are going to form together in this valley of Megiddo. And listen in verse 15. Back up to verse 14. Because it's for their demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God the Almighty. And then notice this little parenthesis of verse 15. Here we are in the middle of all this wrath and chaos, and all of a sudden we have this little parenthetical statement. Listen to what it says. It says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not be, uh, go about naked and be exposed. Jesus speaking here. Jesus steps in and says, you better wake up. Church, you need to wake up. Lost person, you need to wake up. You don't need to reject the gospel anymore because every time that you do, your heart gets colder and colder and colder. He says, blessed is the one who stays awake. When I read that, it reminded me of something Jesus said to the disciples. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's had the triumphal entry. The disciples are with him. And one day the disciples approached Jesus and they asked Jesus, tell us about when you're coming back. Tell us about this time where you're going to reign with power and authority. What, what are the signs that we should be looking for when Messiah comes and reigns upon the earth? Jesus begins to talk about some of the signs that they're to be looking for. But, but then Jesus teaches two parables. And I think these two parables are critical to understanding what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 16 and chapter 15. Back, back up to Matthew 25. Let's turn over there quickly. I want to show you these two parables and we'll close. So Jesus decides to use actually three parables. We're only going to look at two. Three parables to speak to his disciples because what are the disciples concerned about? They're, they're concerned about when is this going to happen? What are we concerned about most of the time? Well, Pastor, can you give us a date or a time? I told you on Sermon 1, all the way back before Christmas, don't look for a day or a time because no man knows that day or that time. But that's what we're concerned about. Why, when, when, is, when is this all going to start? When is the rapture going to occur? And when is all this going to play out? Here's what I'm going to say to you, the same thing that Jesus said to his disciples. Don't worry about the day and the time. I have something for you to do between now and then. Look at, look at Matthew 25. He starts with this parable. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. There's something unique about this parable. So just a little nuance I want to bring your attention to. Jesus teaches many parables. And those parables describe what the kingdom of God is like. But notice when he starts this parable, he has that one little word there, then, and it's in the Greek as well. He, he doesn't do this anywhere else, but right here on this one. So what is he saying? Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. So Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven will, will at some point be like this. Well, what does he mean? Well, what he's doing is he's saying here that once he dies on that cross, pays the sin debt, and is resurrected, what he's talking about in this parable is going to apply. So he says to his disciples, at some point in the future, I want you to pay attention to this parable. Not right now, then. When is then? When he dies, resurrects, and ascends. Okay? He says there's ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. 
For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and went to sleep. Here's what's happening. Jewish wedding. Uh, a groom proposes to a bride, and they enter into a betrothal period. During that betrothal period, the groom is going to leave, and he's going to go, and he's going to get a home ready. He's going to get his house ready. He's going to get everything in order so that when his bride comes home, they can start their life together. And, and in Jewish culture, it was a big deal for, for the, when the groom goes away that the bride and her bridal party remain, well, virgins and remain true and pure, especially the one who's going to marry this young man. She is to remain pure. And all of her buddies who are going to be part of the, of the bridal procession are to remain pure. And they are to wait with anticipation. They don't know how long it's going to be. The groom doesn't know. Well, in this case, Jesus knows. But in the, in the story, the groom is going to go prepare. How long is it going to be? Is it going to be a month? Is it going to be a year? Don't know. The response of the brides, the response of these virgins were to wait with anticipation. Five of them are wise. They, they're waiting. They don't know how long the wait's going to be. So what do they do? They prepare for a longer wait. They have oil. They have extra oil to put in their lamps. The idea of these lamps were is that when the groom comes back, they're going to have a procession down the streets of their community with these lamps burning. And everyone's going to celebrate that the groom has come home and now the wedding is going to be fulfilled and we're going to party and we're going to celebrate. So to be ready means to have your lamp burning bright. Five of them were ready. Five of them, the Bible describes here as foolish. They didn't take any extra supplies. And then at midnight, verse 6, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, hey, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there's not enough for us and you, go rather and buy your own. In other words, hey, we prepared. You didn't. And I don't have anything that I can give you to help you to be prepared. You knew the bridegroom was going to return. We didn't know when. We just knew that we're to be ready for when he comes back. We were. You were not. So go, go buy some more oil. Well, the time they go buy the oil, come back, the bridal procession has already occurred. They've already went to the home. They've already locked the doors. And get this, the bridal party has already started. These foolish virgins knock on the door, and the bridegroom comes, and they say, hey, let us in. We're, we're ready now. And the groom says, sorry, I don't even know who you are. So what's the point of this parable in relation to what Jesus is being asked by the disciples? The disciples are asking Jesus, when is it going to happen and how will we know? Jesus is saying to them, here's some things to keep our eye out for, but here's the big thing. The big thing is you just need to be ready. You need to live every day of your life ready for this to occur. Notice what he says in verse 13. This sums up the whole parable. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So here we are as the bride of Christ. Our groom has gone off to prepare a place for us. In his sovereign grace, he's going to return and receive us unto himself, that where he is, we may be also. We don't know when that's going to happen. It may happen at your death, or it may happen when Jesus returns, and we don't know when either of those days are. It is measured out for you, for man to live, for woman to live for a period of time, and then after this, the judgment. So the first response to a chapter like 15 and 16 is to be ready. 
Not to worry about when is it going to happen. Not to worry about a doomsday clock that was developed by a bunch of scientists that says we're 90 seconds before midnight. I would offer to you that we're one second before midnight. And that's not based on nuclear war or anything else. It's based on the scripture of God's word that says to us, we're right on the threshold, folks. You've got to see that. We don't have a promise of tomorrow. You'll either leave by death or rapture, but one of them's coming. And it may be just around the corner. So Jesus says to his disciples, don't worry about when. The question is, is are you ready? The second parable is the parable of the talents. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll give you the story. Jesus says there's a master of a household. He's very wealthy. And he calls together three servants. He says to those three servants, I'm going to give you part of my kingdom. I'm going to give you a large sum of money based on, well, your ability to handle it. So the first one, he gives them five talents, large sum of money. The second servant, he gives two talents, large sum of money. Third servant, he gives one talent, and he says, now, deal with this, invest this, maximize this while I'm gone. It's not yours, it's mine. I'm giving it to you to use while I'm gone. The master goes away, and he stays gone for a long period of time. The first servant takes those five talents, turns it into five more. The second servant takes the two, turns it into two more. The third servant takes the one that he gave and went and buried it. Didn't do anything with it. The master comes back, calls his servants following, and says, okay, what did you do with what I gave you? Because remember, the master entrusted this to them. The first one took the five, turned it into ten. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into, your, come into my kingdom, and I'm going to give you more responsibility. Second guy, what did you do? Well, I took two and turned it into four. Great job. Good, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into all that I've promised you, and I'll give you more responsibility. Third servant, what did you do? Well, I knew you to be a hard guy. I knew you to be a guy who doesn't really deserve any of this. So I just took what you gave me, I buried it, and here it is back. And the master looks at him and says, you're a wicked servant. Could you have not at least put it in the bank and gave me some kind of return? But instead, you just hoarded it? You treated it as though it was worthless? You treated it as though it didn't mean anything to you? And not only that, it reveals to me that your heart towards me is very cold and indifferent. You don't really love me. You don't have any respect for the master at all. So what does the master say? I'm going to cast you out into outer darkness. So at the first parable here, says to us in response to the book of Revelation, the wrath that is coming, to be ready. The second one says, the second one says, be productive while you wait. We're not just to sit around and watch the eastern sky. We're to be at work. We're to be doing the work of the kingdom that Christ has given us. And Christ has invested a whole lot into you. I mean, a tremendous amount into you. And for us to just sit on our blessed assurance, waiting for Jesus to come home, is the very thing that what the Bible calls is disobedience. Jesus didn't save you to sit in a building like this and just wait for death. Wow, doesn't that sound exciting? Ooh, I'm saved and I'm waiting to die to go to heaven. Folks, that is, that can be further away from the New Testament as it can be. God has invested some spiritual gifts in you, some talents in you, and he says, take that talent, take that gift that I've given you, and go use it for the kingdom work and multiply it. Because the reality is, the master's going to come back. I don't know when it's going to be. I don't know when I'm going to have to stand before him, but I know I will. Am I ready for that moment? And while I'm waiting for that moment, am I about the work that he's given me to do? That's two questions you need to wrestle with this morning. That's two questions you need to, you need to check your heart. Am I ready? Ready meaning I put my faith in Jesus. 
If you've already done that, ready means I'm living every day of my life that if I were to have to stand before Jesus right now, I would not have to be ashamed of how I'm living. And are you being productive? Are you using what God has given you? Our church does not exist to make more consumers of religion. We're not here to put on a show for you. We're not here to be seen on a platform. We're here to do the work that Christ has given us to do. And we're not consumers. We are to be fellow partners in the kingdom work that Christ has given us. He's empowered you to do that. And the question is, are we just going to sit around and wait for Jesus to come back? Or are we going to get to work, the work that he's given us to do? Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and kindness. And all through your word, what we find, what we find, Lord, over and over again, is every time you pour out your wrath, every time you have judged, every time you have corrected your people prior to that was years of your grace and mercy, years of prophets and messengers sent, years of you being patient, giving them plenty of time to respond. And so, Father, we find ourselves today in a place where we are still experiencing your patience and your grace and your mercy. But we see in the book of Revelation that that one day is going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end when we die as far as opportunities to respond ends at the moment we die or if we face you in the second coming. So, Father, the question is, are we ready? The second question is, if we are ready, are we being productive in the kingdom work? Father, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of every person here and those watching online this morning. Draw them to the next step of faith that they need to make. And Father, I pray that their heart would not grow colder today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.